This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining News Talk today. I'm Deb Hutton. This is day three of a four-day run of hosting uh, and joining you every afternoon between noon and two. Thanks for being along. We're going to start off the top with an old topic but a new twist on it. Hockey Canada, yet another day of discussion on issues related to Hockey Canada. As we all know by uh, now, or at least uh, we know the thumbnail of all of what's been happening there, they've come under fire for their National Equity Fund, an interesting name for what is essentially for many people considered a slush fund. They uh, initially came under fire earlier this year for a $3.5 million lawsuit uh, that they settled with a woman who had alleged sexually being sexually assaulted by eight hockey players in 2018. Subsequently, they told a parliamentary committee that, in fact, they had been paid, they had paid out another $7.6 million for nine additional complaints since 1989. And joining us today for her take on this, again, a little bit of a twist on this story, is Katie Weatherston, who's a Canadian retired ice hockey player and Olympic gold medalist. She's now a part-time hockey coach, real estate agent, and motivational speaker, raising awareness of concussions. Katie, welcome to News Talk Today. Oh, we don't have we don't have Katie. All right, let me fill in uh, Katie's details a little bit. I was going to get her to share her story uh, with you herself. So Katie is, as I said, an Olympic gold medalist. She says that uh, she suffered a series of concussions such that she has prolonged uh, concussion uh, side effects, uh, which make her medical bills extremely expensive. This is as a result of a number of accidents that occurred uh, during her time as an Olympian and as a hockey player. She reported these injuries, of course, at the young age of 25, was hopeful that she would come back. She had a a small payout from Hockey Canada to support her initially, but she did not move forward on uh, some claims at the time because she felt, through insurance, because she felt that she she would be back in the game and playing a game. We've now got her. Katie, welcome to News Talk Today. Thanks for having me. So I just gave a little thumbnail of your of your medical history and your series of accidents that have led to what what is it called now? What prolonged concussion? What what is it actually called that you suffer from at this well, stage? Once you once you get a concussion, you know it's it's a concussion. Then when you you suffer for months, they move it to post concussion. And in my case, when it's not going away and uh, you've been suffering with it for years, it's 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 a traumatic brain injury. Um, so when it, it it could be it's most likely going to be lifelong. And you uh, did have some payout from Hockey Canada related to those injuries. Is that correct? Yes. So in, um, in 2005, I had a bike crash in uh, Prince Edward Island at a Team Canada training camp. And at that time, I didn't know, but they covered the, the root canals, the ambulance. And I think those medical bills... Uh, were six around six thousand dollars for um, claims above and beyond what insurance covered because uh, being females we wear cages so that so hockey Canada at that time didn't have accidental dental for their players okay and then um, I found out later when I was asking I, you know I reached out in at the end of 2012 2013 and 2014 our emails between me and hockey Canada um, uh, their insurance representatives and uh, they told me, you know, unfortunately, $4,000 is all we have to work with. 
And I guess, um, I don't know why, but for some reason, 10000 was the maximum they were willing to pay above and beyond what insurance covered. I, I did ask them if um, they have long-term insurance for, like, long-term disability insurance for a traumatic brain injury. And uh, their response was, you know, uh, I think, you know, we have this coverage, but it's fairly new and... Uh, I'm not sure, you know, if, if you'd be covered under it. It's fairly new. I'd have to know based on when your accidents were. But, you know, looking back at the emails, they knew exactly when my accidents were. So I, I never I never received clarity on if this could have been covered under their long-term disability insurance policy. So, of course, you're bringing this issue forward because we are talking about not thousands of dollars, but millions of dollars in payouts. How does that make you feel given the difference in circumstances? I mean, I think it's it's disgraceful, right? It's uh, it's just another slap in the face. For 16 years, I've been upset uh, that Hockey Canada hasn't taken care of me, um, that all they gave me was 4000 towards medical bills when I told them, you know, that first year my bills were approximately $15,000 trying to get trying to get better. Um, why I didn't speak out sooner or write these emails sooner is because I was hoping to get back and play for the 2014 Olympics. You know, you, you want to get back in there. You don't want to upset Hockey Canada. You don't you don't want to be a pain or bother them. Um, so it's it's pretty tough to to publicly come out and say, you know, Hockey Canada did me wrong. Tell me a little bit more about your last comment. You don't want to upset them. You don't want to bother them. What what does that mean specifically? What was your sense of what would happen if you were a bit of a squeaky wheel at the time? Yeah, I mean, you get cut from the team ultimately, right? Uh, you don't want to be blacklisted. You know, I'll, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of other people out there in similar positions, but they maybe don't want to speak up because they either coach Maybe they want their kids to someday play uh, with Hockey Canada. I mean, you know, they're or they're too scared to, to stand up and, and speak out. Um, you know, it is it is hard. It's draining. It's, it's taken you know a lot of energy and time. But I think the message has to get out there that it's it's not right. When I when I found out about these uh, lawsuits, I was just devastated. I just could not believe that as a young twenty five year old who potentially has a lifelong brain injury, is asking you for help with no insurance, no full-time job, won a gold medal for you at the Olympics, won a gold medal for you at the World Championships, and and you come back and say, you know, sorry, there's no funds available. When we all know now, uh, they had the means and ability to pay. They chose not to, um, and that's that's unjust. It's not right. Um, for 16 years, I wondered, you know, if I was, if it was on the men's team or world juniors, would they have taken care of me? I said, probably. And, you know, this, this information that surfaced just solidifies that, you know, there's a big disparity between men and women and how we get treated. So is that actually your view of the disparity as opposed to injuries versus embarrassing acts, which is another way to look at it? Yeah, I, I think they're, 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 those are the two ways to look at it, but I think both, both play into it. Um, you know, would they, I don't think they would have gone to those lengths for, for the women's team. Um, and just, just, uh, I mean, we're all kind of disgusted that they, they weren't transparent with the funds, you know, re- reporting to the board, um, that money they spent. So, you know, they're spending all of Canada's, you know, money. There's parents that are upset that put money into hockey Canada. You know, they, hockey's a very expensive sport to play. And we all want answers, you know, where, where did that money go to? 
And it sounds like the National Equity Fund was something that could have helped me um, and injured players. And I, I feel like that money was mismanaged and misused. We're speaking with Katie Weatherston, who's a Canadian uh, retired ice hockey player and Olympic gold medalist, about uh, her concerns that, that she had minimal payouts after a series of significant and long-lasting accidents versus the uh, national, so-called National Equity Fund. Last minute here, Katie, just wondering, what is your reaction to what has transpired in terms of the board resigning, the CEO resigning? Do you have hope that things can be turned around, and what would you like to see? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, you know, it's it's kind of sad that it took all their sponsors ex- exiting uh, for them for them to to make changes. But they have been making changes. Uh, um, it's more the people that were involved back in two thousand three, two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, uh, two thousand and eighteen, and you know, I think those people are are being brought forward and and they're being questioned. Um, all of Canada just wants answers and transparency. And if and if there was wrong criminal activity and wrongdoings, we we want to see justice served, and um, I, I think Hockey Canada is on the right track now. Um, they have a lot of work to do, a lot of changes to make, but you know, hopefully, the they do have a board with you know fifty fifty women and uh, and men, and um, the women's team does have have a bigger seat at the table. So uh, it's good to see changes are, are coming, and um, you know, we just got to keep talking about it and, and pressuring them to make these changes and uh, and do the right thing. Katie Weatherston, thanks so much for joining News Talk today. I'm Deb Hutton. We'll be back after the break to talk about the National Inquiry. It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, hosting all this week uh, from noon to 2. Thank you for joining us. And I decided uh, when I knew I was going to be hosting for the week that every day at this time we would take a bit of a temperature check and get an update on what is happening with the inquiry taking place out of Ottawa on the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act earlier this year. And joining us today, a guy who's uh, always on top of these things and was hosting in this slot last week because I listen to him regularly, Graham Richardson, Chief Anchor for CTV, Ottawa News at 6. Welcome back to the program, Graham. Deb, what's going on? You're broadcasting... Am I going to start spinning people and saying how great Mike Harris is now? Like, have we, like is this an upside-down world? Strange reversal of roles. Great to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. So give us a sense what's been happening this morning while uh, I was getting ready for the show. Yeah, um, so Diane Deans, the chair, the former chair of the Police Services Board, is now uh, testifying, dropping bombs about what, what happened when the police chief resigned. Um, for people around the country, this is at the height of the convoy. Uh, there's chaos in the streets of Ottawa. They've lost control of the of, of the city. Uh, you know, Fox News is here. It's it's before Ukraine. It's the biggest story in the world, and the police can't seem to get their act together to actually do what they eventually did, which is you know, take the protesters out and and clear the streets. Um, Just a few moments ago, uh, Diane Deans, the chair of the board, who was removed in the midst of this, um, says that at some point she said to Chief Slowly, Peter Slowly, you know, a lot of people in this town want your head. And he says to her, well, cut me a check and I'll be gone. So we're getting an inside look, Deb, at the chaos, at the... um, 
there's a lot of finger pointing going on. Uh, we should keep in mind this is in front of a judge. We don't know what the judge is going to make of all of this. But yesterday, Mayor Watson um, is suggesting strongly that the Ford government did not take this seriously early on. Wanted just it's a police solution, not a political solution. Windsor changed that. Um, and the, the Prime Minister is set to testify later. So there's lots of information here that has not been made public that is being cracked open by this inquiry, which is required under the Act whenever the government uh, invokes the Emergencies Act. Of course, this is the first time they've ever done it. So just on uh, Diane Deans and your comment about policing versus political solutions, I just I want to play a clip, a clip that we grabbed uh, from her. And again, this is Diane Deans, who's the former Ottawa Police Services Board chair. I took it to mean is that there wasn't a policing solution locally with OPS. I mean, OPS is, it, it's a city police service. It, it does community policing and emergency response and a lot of other things. But um, we hadn't seen something like this before. It was clearly different. And Dean's went on to say this just as a, an additional point. We did not have the resources inside Ottawa Police, nor did we have the expertise in terms of, um, you know, setting out a a real plan on how you're going to get this tiger by the tail um, inside police. We just hadn't had much experience with this. So, Graham Richardson, I just shake my head at that. How do we have a, I mean, Ottawa is a good-sized city. How do we have a police force that does not know how to handle something like this, or if they feel they need extra resources, clearly didn't ask in time? They, uh, that, that's a good question. Um, but I think, Deb, also, like, this is not Canada Day. This is not, this is not the Tamil protest. This is not some of the protests that, that your former colleagues faced during the Common Sense Revolution where the legislature was blocked. This was all of that times 10. That's what Deans is getting at. They didn't have any intelligence, it sounds like, coming in that they had plans to stay, that these people, they're, they're winter campers. They're, they're, you know, in many cases, they're hunters. They've got all the gear they need to stay, as they did, or they're staying in trucks, as they did for several weeks through minus 30 weather. So uh, I think what she's getting at there is that this was like nothing they'd faced before, the question is, though, it's, and it's a simple question um, that I still don't have a very clear answer to. Who made the call to let them park to begin with? Because you didn't do that at Queen's Park. They didn't do that at Quebec City. And they had trouble at Windsor that they cleared very quickly. So what was the idea here? Slowly, we'll probably testify to that. The other question I have, where was the intelligence? These people were not bikers. Like, where are the undercover cops going out in January, flying to Saskatoon or Calgary or B.C., and, you know, posing as truckers who are people who are mad at Trudeau and are going to drive across the country with these people? Did they do that? Where was CSIS? And I think the answer is they didn't do that because they didn't realize early on that it was really as big as it was going to be. That being said, quickly, I happened to be in B.C. at the very start of this. I was on vacation, and I saw it rumbling in the streets of Vancouver. And I was like, this is what people are supporting all the way in Ottawa. Like, this is something completely different. And so 
I, I think the evidence was there. And now the question for the judge is, you know, why did it all fall down? And did the Emergencies Act fix it? Like, was it necessary? Or was it an overstep by Trudeau? That's that's the key question he's going to have to answer. Well, and I want to come back to that because that's the question I've been asking each of our journalists uh, each day this week because it's something that really bugs me about the inquiry. But on the specifics itself, we also, though, have had evidence, Graham, that, uh, you know, they proactively reached out to the Hotel Association yeah. with a very long a list of both people and time frames for hotels. Like, that's not deep undercover information no. that you, you couldn't normal. find. And it's not normal, right? No. And it was, so Ken Alakis, the city manager, says, well, we passed it on to Ottawa City Police when we got this. And it was kind of like, well, that's all we could do. And it's like, I, I, you know, I understand politicians can't direct and city officials can't direct police, but don't you actually call up slowly and say, hey, we got this email. You guys should really take a look at this because they've, there's a request here for, for long-term stays and thousands of people. What makes you think they're going to leave on Sunday? Even today, Dean said that slowly said to her that he expects they're going to be gone at the end of the weekend. So they had bad intelligence coming in. They miscalculated the size. And then in fairness to them and everybody involved, as you know, social media drove this thing, and immediately they say, wait a sec, there's stages being set up, there's flags up, there's a street party on Wellington, there are hot tubs, I'm going to come too. And thousands came too, after the fact. So it grew and grew and grew, because they completely lost control, and there were no rules in the downtown of Ottawa for those cold days in February. So I am going to come back to the question, as I said, I've been asking each of our journalists this week, which is that while we're talking about this, while we're going, you know, he said, she said, and it's mm-hmm. interesting and all that stuff, how much does it actually fit into the original mandate uh, as legislated of this inquiry, which is to ask the question, was there an appropriate level of activity and danger, et cetera, for the government to invoke the Emergencies Act? Like, that is really, Graham, the only purpose of a legislated inquiry of this nature. That's right. And all I can say is, what I would say to that is, the commission lawyers are leading this evidence from these witnesses. The commission sets the witness list. So this is what, apparently, what the judge wants to hear. And I've been telling our listeners and viewers, look, we don't know what he's going to say about all of this. He may reject the mayor's evidence out of hand and say, you exaggerated the uh, indifference of the province in the early days. It doesn't matter that Doug Ford's people weren't at a meeting because it was a policing matter. He may take the province's side on that. I don't know. Um, But, you know, and a lot of this is the perspective of the witnesses, how much the judge actually includes. And and I've been reminding people as much as I can. The only question that matters here for him was, as an, was and I'm, I'm boiling it down to layman's terms, was it an overstep by Trudeau or not? Was it justified or not? Because as we all know, it is a severe thing to do to invoke something like this. The mayor yesterday said, yes, it was. And just before I leave, I know you're tight for time. The, the key question of the tow trucks I think the judge will have something to say about that. All the tow trucks said no to the police in Ottawa and everyone else. They didn't want to get involved. The Emergencies Act happened. They showed up with masks on, with their company decals off. 
when they were essentially, we believe, forced to do so by police. That may have been the difference in getting the trucks removed. And we'll see what the judge has to say about that. Graham Richardson, thanks for your time. This is News Talk Today. Keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, your host for News Talk Today all this week. We just, uh, in the last segment, chatted with Graham Richardson, who's an anchor for CTV Ottawa News, and gave us a recap of what's been happening this morning on the inquiry into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act. I just want to read one text before we move on. It says, uh, from Toronto, I was one of the Toronto Police Services officers responding to the June 15th, 2020 protest at Queen's Park. Then Inspector Slowly, so Subsequently, the police chief out of Ottawa was the senior officer leading planning our response. He had experience responding to violent protests. I find the testimony you played from Ottawa police to be completely false. Chief slowly had the experience to respond to the protests and as the chief should have been aware of his officers needed training. So an interesting perspective. Thanks to our texter for sending that in. We're going to move on to a different topic today. You may recall that uh, back in May, the Liberal government announced a plan to implement a freeze on importing, buying, selling, or otherwise transferring handguns in order to help quell firearm-related violence in the country. Now, MPs are coming under pressure right now to broaden an exemption to that that, uh, legislation. The government says that effectively capping the number of handguns in Canada will make people safer, noting there were more serious, most serious crimes present when firearm-related violence occurred. Businesses could still sell exempted individuals, and those exempted individuals include elite sport shooters who compete or coach in handgun events that are recognized by the International Olympic or Paralympic Committees. Joining News Talk today is Wes Winkle, who's president of the Canadian Sporting Arms and Ammunition Association. And yesterday, Wes uh, told a House of Commons committee that is looking into this pending legislation that other competition shooters should be exempted from the proposed legislative provisions. Wes, welcome to News Talk today. Thank you very much for having me. So tell us why you believe the exemption should be expanded to give other sports shooters an opportunity to buy handguns in this country? Well, very simply because uh, the handgun shooting sports are much more broad than just uh, a situation where there's uh, Olympic competitions. It would kind of be the same as to say the golfers that you can only participate in the Olympics and not let them compete in stuff that, uh, like the Masters and uh, the PGA Tour and their local their local golf uh, course uh, uh, competitions. There's many, many competitions across the country by licensed and vetted individuals that have never committed any crime, that store their firearms properly, and are completely licensed. And uh, they have been no harm to public safety. They've been participating in their shorts in their sports safely for many, many years. And to penalize them for the actions of criminals in in gang violence in inner cities in Canada seems quite counterproductive. So your view would be uh, we need to be able to sell to amateur sports shooters before they become a professional because that's the way you get there. Exactly. Yeah. You know, to, to train. Some of these people have been training their whole life to try to get there, and they still are. And for them not to be able to continue purchasing uh, firearms and competing in their sport, it uh, definitely puts them at the, a disadvantage. And as well as our competitive shooters in Canada put them at a disadvantage. So 
you know, I get the logic of that. Mm-hmm. As a mom, I have to say that you do have kids who start this sport as early as eight or nine years old. And I find that a little unsettling to follow your logic to that level. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time at gun clubs, and I can tell you there's not many uh, children as young as that age starting, but there are some in some situations where they do start very, very young. Uh, you know, same in Olympic biathlon competitions. We do have, uh, you know, youth programs where they start at a young age. But again, you have to remember that uh, uh, the with the lack of knowledge of the way the sport runs, that I understand why it might appear unsettling. But again, those competitions are only conducted in a very safe environment by trained, vetted individuals and range officers that ensure the safety. Those firearms are not sent home in the backpacks with those young children. They are only uh, using them in, in a situation where there's a very controlled environment and everyone that's around them has been highly trained in, in making sure that it operates safely. And uh, you can check the stats, but there is virtually no injuries that, that happen in those sports. They are very safe. They are safer than any of our mainstream sports like hockey, football, and skiing and other types of recreational activities. We're speaking with Wes Winkle, who's president of the Canadian Sporting Arms and Ammunition Association, and they're calling for the uh, planned handgun freeze exemption to be opened up wider uh, to more sports shooters, not just those who are covered uh, by the or who are declared to be recognized by the International Olympic or Paralympic Committees. I will say after Wes and I finish our chat, uh, we are going to have a member of the gun control group, Polly Polly Sousouvian, and the woman is also a survivor of the 1989 Polytechnique Massacre. And we're going to get her perspective, a bit of a he said, she said on this topic. And then we'll open up the phone lines after the break to get your perspective on it. So, Wes, what has your uh, what has the response been uh, by the Liberal government to your uh, request for a wider exemption? Well, we've had a positive response from some members of the Security Council and the Security Committee. Uh, they understand that uh, the reasoning behind it and, and the the logic behind it, and I think that there is uh, definitely a, a, a temperature to compromise on this situation. You have to remember that these, that these uh, people that are we're talking about also already own firearms. The the transfer freeze is just transfer uh, freezing the new firearms that come in. So it, this would force them to continue to compete with firearms that may be worn out and may become dangerous. And this is so. There's not changing the amount of firearms owners. It is literally just exempting them so that they can replace their firearms that may or may not be safe anymore. So you're not asking for a a kid who wants to come into the sport, even a teenager, early 20s, to be allowed to purchase? Well, so again, if you look at the the exemption, it exempts uh, competition shooters that uh, uh, are already licensed and vetted in the sport. It's not uh, the exemption does not apply at this point in time. To anyone that is a, a new entrance to our sport. Okay, Wes Winkle, thank you very much. We are going to take the other side of the uh, topic in just a second, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And as I said, we are going to, uh, after the break, give you an opportunity to weigh in on this issue. Should the exemption be extended to other sports shooters, those who may not be at the Olympic level or those who are training perhaps to be at the Olympic level who would not come in under those individuals who are recognized by uh, the International Olympic or Paralympic Committees. Tony, have we got our second guest? All right. Joining us is Heidi Rathjen, who's a member of the gun control group Poly Sousouviant and a survivor of the 1989 Polytechnique 
uh, massacre. Welcome to News Talk today, Heidi. Thank you. Just to precision, I'm not a survivor. I was a witness to the shooting. Oh, my mistake. I'm sorry about that. So give us, you just heard uh, Wes Winkle talk about why the exemption by the liberal government for its proposed ban should be extended. Give us your take on that. Well, um, it's important to understand that exempting IPSC and and that kind of practical shooting pretty much would cancel the freeze on uh, new handgun purchases because any gun club could host IPSC competitions and IPSC could pretty much recognize or certify any competition they choose. And the vast majority of um, handgun owners uh, acquired their handguns for target practice. So theoretically, that would open the door for, you know, to, to let anybody who's in a gun club who's competing to sign up for an IPSC uh, competition and to be exempted. Um, and it's not just us saying it. Uh, recently, the BC uh, chapter of IPSC said that should they be granted such an exemption, uh, and I'm quoting them, we will... Um, we will become the gateway to handgun ownership in Canada and can expect a huge increase in membership. So we are completely against uh, such an exemption. It would render the freeze null and void. And um, I have to say we're particularly um, shocked that um, some uh, some opposition parties like the NDP uh, the NDP um, public safety critic called for such an exemption that that this party who traditionally supports gun control uh, would side with a gun lobby on the issue of handguns. And of course, uh, IPSC is the International Practical Shooting Confederation and the International Defensive Pistol Association as well, who's calling for this. Keep in mind, uh, you get to call in after the break, 1-855-633-1010. So for those who are a bit skeptical about this and who believe that this is a legitimate sport... What would your position on that be, that we shouldn't have it at all? Uh, That's exactly our position, and it's probably the position of most Canadians, because most Canadians want to completely ban handguns and assault weapons. And these are the weapons that are used in the practical uh, shooting competitions that used to be called combat. That's also called tactical shooting, uh, but practical just sounds a little bit better. Um, and what they do is they have these competitions where um, you fire at uh, a bunch of targets, kind of like uh, real life scenarios, like hostage taking and that kind of thing. You get points for shooting the, the hostage taker and not the hostage. Heidi, I'm um, sorry. I am going to cut you off my mistake. I asked you a last question. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I hope you listen to the call ins after the break. Thanks again. It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the program. I'm Deb Hutton. I am your host this week for News Talk Today. And in the last segment, we uh, heard from two people on opposite sides of the issue of the handgun freeze. Certainly, uh, we're most of us aware of the liberal government's legislation introduced to ban the, what do they say specifically, the uh, importing, buying, selling, and otherwise transferring of handguns in the province. 
uh, Wes Winkle, we heard from, who is president of the Canadian Sporting Arms and Ammunition Association, who says that exemption should be expanded to uh, a variety of sports shooters who aren't just at the elite level and uh, recognized specifically by the International Olympic Committee, basically people who, who might hope to get into the Olympics but would not yet be recognized or other sports shooters. On the other side of things, we heard from uh, Heidi Rathjen, who is a member of the gun control group, Polly Sousuviant, and uh, she made the point that absolutely not. If we were to expand that particular exemption, it would basically mean everybody could continue as they've been. one 1010 Give us a shout. Let us know your position. Are you with Wes or are you with Heidi? Uh, Heidi, I had to end on a, on a quick note, and so she did send a, a note to us saying, that um, she she believes that no participant will end up using the skills they acquired through tactical shooting practices, but the fact is that there could be some bad apples anywhere. I cut her off on her last point, last point so she reached out to us just to say she doesn't believe everybody's bad, but there will be some bad apples in the mix. But let's go to you, one 1010 Are you for uh, adding to the exemption to allow more I'll I'll call them amateur sports shooters, to be included in the exemption? Or do you think we should simply stick with the current legislation that means only those recognized by the International Olympic or Paralympic committees will be able to continue um, with an exemption on this matter? Let's go to Sam in London. Sam, what do you say on this one? I I strongly disagree with Heidi. In fact, I don't believe there should be any talk of a handgun freeze in the first place. But, you know, to pivot to the point of allowing it to expand to uh, amateur, quote-unquote, sports shooters, I'd be for that if that's the best we would get. I'm a 19-year-old, and I grew up around firearms. My brother is a handgun owner, for instance, and he has taken me shooting on numerous occasions. And there is no... Uh, undue public safety risk, I feel. The statistics do not support it. As Wes, uh, who is from the Canadian Shooting Sports Association, previously mentioned, you're more likely to have a serious injury or death playing hockey, soccer, etc. Okay, Sam, thanks for that. Let's move on to Eric from Oakville. Eric, uh, do you believe that we should expand the exemption currently in the Liberal legislation? to include amateur sports shooters uh, in this uh, in the exemption? I think that they should expand the exemption. I say this as someone who is licensed to own firearms. I'm also a teacher. I'm also a parent. I actually wound up getting rid of all my guns, to tell you the truth, and it wasn't for political reasons. It was because things were becoming so increasingly difficult to even keep up with the sport because that's really what, they they want it's not really a public safety issue it becomes a matter of they're trying to make it as difficult as possible and so much more paperwork so eventually people do just give up and say you know what i'm not even going to bother getting into this it is a distraction from it it's not really actually a public safety thing uh because so you actually you did what you think they're trying to to like you, you actually were proof that they got what they wanted from you. You just said, this is too much hassle. I'm not going to do it. In a manner of speaking, yeah, because I went through all of I went through my unrestricted course. I went through my restricted course. I owned a handgun at one time. I went through the paperwork of having to have a, an authorization to transport. I went through, I think the average Canadian has no idea how difficult already it is. 
and how law-abiding the firearms owners in this country are. And actually, what's interesting, I don't want to take too long, a lot of people like myself are actually the ones who are calling out for harsher penalties for people who commit gun crimes and for illegal guns and the smuggling. And that's where all the problems are. So unfortunately, this is a distraction The exemption should happen because all you're doing is punishing someone who is already jumping through every legal loophole that you force them to do. And really, that's what it becomes. It becomes a matter of, you know what, it's not worth the effort. I'm just going to pick another hobby. That's why I switched to motorcycles. (laughs) (laughs) That safer option. Thanks for the call, Eric. Uh, We're talking about, and and please give us a call, 1-855-633-1010. We're talking about whether the proposed exemption strictly for those uh, shooters who are uh, recognized by the International Olympic or Paralympic Committees, whether that exemption should be extended to those who belong to uh, sports shooting associations and clubs, etc. One of the points that uh, uh, our gun control guest made was that you will see a significant rise in people who want to pick up the sport if that's, in fact, how they can actually buy a handgun. Do you believe that or not? Let's go back to our callers. Debbie from Niagara, what's your view on this? Okay, I'm a senior woman. I also sit as a board director of a gun club. Um, We do not allow tactical shooting. Um, Many of our members have gone on to the Olympics, started out as sports shooters when they were young, and they actually went to the Olympics. So you would buy into the point uh, that was made by Wes Winkle, who's president of the Canadian Sporting Arms and Ammunition Association, that the way to get to the Olympic uh, designation is through amateur sport. And we wouldn't expect anybody who would go on the, I think he used the golf example, we wouldn't expect you to show up on the Masters without having years of practice. Correct. I agree with that totally. Okay. Debbie, thanks for the call. Debbie from Niagara. Uh, Emily from Mississauga, what's your view on this? Hi. So I am a competitive sport shooter, although my sport of choice is not handguns. But I started shooting when I was 12 years old. I'm almost 62. The math suggests I've been doing this safely for 50 years. And what other sport can everyone of all ages and demographics and even um, physical abilities uh, compete in for their entire life? The The benefits that one gets from participating in a sport such as shooting sports. Oh, I think we lost her. Sorry about that. Um, You know what? I I apologize to all those who are sitting on the uh, call screens. We are going to have to move on, but certainly an interesting topic. We thank our guests and we thank all of you for calling in on this and everyone who texted. Coming up after the break, it is the War Room Time, a weekly feature on News Talk Today where three of our federal pundits get to talk about the issues that are happening nationally this week. I'm Deb Hutton. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Network. Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The War Room. 
That is very ominous music. This is my first time hosting the War Room here on News Talk today. I'm Deb Hutton, and joining me in the War Room, Bob Richardson, Senior Counsel at National Public Relations and a former Ontario Liberal Chief of Staff, Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst and a former NDP leader of our nation, and Tim Powers, Chairman of Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data. Gentlemen, welcome to News Talk today. Hi, Deb. Good to be here. Hi, Deb. All right. So we are going to start with the uh, inquiry into the Federal Emergencies Act. And I'm not going to go through the testimony. We've had an opportunity each day this week to hear from a journalist to sort of give us a recap of what's happening. But I really want to ask you guys, is this inquiry doing what it should do, which I believe is, and I think we most of us agree, is really just to get to the core of the matter, whether in fact the government was justified when they invoked the Emergencies Act uh, for its first time in history, uh, but just to make sure that it was a vote invoked appropriately, that our rights were protected and that sort of thing. Is that, in fact, what we are getting at the inquiry? Or is it just so widespread and so much political theater that we won't ultimately have a clear answer? Um, Bob Richardson, I'm going to start with you. What's your take on what's happening in Ottawa during this inquiry? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I think Mm -hmm. it's probably, uh, I think there's some mission creep here. I think there's uh, 65 witnesses uh, if I'm not mistaken, if if not more that are uh, coming up to bat, uh, that's a lot of folks. I think the coverage will be uh, this side's winning, that side's winning from on a day to day basis. I think we saw a little bit at uh, yesterday with uh, with Mayor Watson's testimony. Uh, so I'm not sure that part is great. Uh, I think it is. Uh, I think it is important to figure out whether the whether the federal government was justified in doing this. I happen to. Uh, uh, be one of those who was uh, quite pleased that they went ahead and did it because it ended the circus and it the circus needed to end. But I also think we need, we're kind of missing the point here too as well. I don't see any sort of inquiry or group of people working on how do we fix this situation so that we don't have something like this happening in the parliamentary precinct in Ottawa again. Uh, and really that's a piece of work that I think uh, should be being done now too as well not just uh, not just uh, Justice Rulo's study. Thomas McCare, Mulcair, I, uh, I agree, but I don't think that latter piece that Bob's talking about should be part of this inquiry. Well, I think where we're going to wind up, Deb, and it's only been a few days, so I guess it's all still early going but, because there's another five and a half weeks of this. I think where we're going to probably wind up is somewhere like this, saying that once it got to the point that it got to, because this isn't just a circus, this is a state of lawlessness that proved itself to be beyond the scope of the the Ottawa police force that whose chief got fired in the middle of these events. The Ontario Provincial Police and the Quebec Provincial Police and the RCMP and CSIS finally did a good job once they had been handed those tools. So I think that the final answer will be, yes, they needed it once they got there. But what sort of breakdown occurred to get to a state where you actually needed to bring in the Emergencies Act. I think that that's going to be the key question. I think also people should listen to what Rulo says because he's, he's the still waters run deep type. He's going to listen to people. He's going to let them go. But at some point, he's going to start reeling them in. I think a good example yesterday was, was Watson. I mean, his city broke down. His administration broke down. His police force broke down. But he knows the answer. It's Doug Ford's fault. When I heard that, I just sort of, oh, come on, give me a break. Tim Powers, uh, you're laughing. 
Well, I, they're better than the PTSD that I could have, you know, Deb, from being here in Ottawa <laughs> at the time and, sit, and, and sitting here now. Just picking up on something Tom said, I think really in the end it's going to come down to the skillfulness of Justice Rulo because you're going to have, as Bob described it, you know, the the, the fights and the uh, I'm out to get you moments between all of these various politicians. I mean, it's hardly surprising for anybody sitting in Ottawa to hear Jim Watson say Toronto doesn't give a damn about us and not so many words. And that's part of the reason this all happened. And again, the, the final point I'd make in all of this, um, what I think is disappointing for me and lots of people here who lived through all of this, I mean, we had the incident, and Tom was here when it happened in 2014, the attack on the hill uh, that uh, took the life of uh, of a soldier and, of course, took the life, the life of the perpetrator was taken. What were some of the lessons then? Well, there were similar to the things we're already hearing. Police forces weren't communicating with each other properly. Uh, who was in command? Again, not clear. If we didn't take that from 2014, thankfully nobody was killed here. When are we going to learn these lessons, particularly when it comes to policing this city and managing a major G7 capital that has protests? So I'm banking a lot on Rulu cutting through all the bullcrap to give us some uh, insight into what happened and what we need to do. But come on, we pay a lot of money to have people get trained in risk management and terrorism. Can they not get it right beforehand for once? So I'm with you, Tim, but I just think that's not the scope of this, or this shouldn't be the scope of this inquiry. Those are two different matters in my view. And it's one of the reasons why I prefer a very scoped, judge-led inquiry for most issues, let alone something as big as whether or not you enact the Emergencies uh, Act. Well, maybe Tom can speak to this better than I can, Deb. I have not... uh... Uh, tortured myself yet by reading the Emergencies Act line by line. Blame the PTSD again for that one. Um, but but it's pretty prescribed. And I, I think they are supposed to come back. Yes, they're, they're going to determine whether it was right or not to invoke it. But I can't imagine, can't imagine that they won't talk about, you know, the key performance indicators that they got right and the ones that they got wrong. So, yes, it's limited in scope, but by, I think, the very nature of what is being sought here in the broader public, we'll get more of that. Tom, did you want to respond to that? Well, I, I think that Tim's spot on. And Rulo will come up with a decision in which he lays out 28 points, 14 things that yeah. should have been done differently so you didn't have to use the Emergencies Act. And once you decide to have the Emergencies Act, well, you need further guarantees with regard to people's bank accounts and what you can get as information. And you have to protect a certain number of rights. So that becomes a roadmap heaven forbid that it take place in the next 40 years. But if if they do need to use the Emergencies Act again, then they'll have a roadmap and they'll refer not only to the statute, but they'll refer to the Rulo decision and they'll refer to his criteria. And that'll help provide guidance in the future. This was the first time it was used. So, of course, everybody's second guessing whether or not it was necessary. So I'm going to switch topics really quickly before the break on inflation and our federal finance minister's comments that come just short of using the R word for recession this week. Bob, your thoughts on that? Uh, Look, uh, uh, it's good news that it's down, I think, three months in a row. Uh, The number, while still high, I think it's over 6%, if I remember, uh, is not great. But uh, when you take a look at our G7 allies, I think we're pretty, pretty much close to the low end of the pack compared to other people. So I think uh, both the bank and the government are doing okay on the issue. There's obviously a lot more work that needs uh, needs to be done. Uh, but uh, 
Uh, obviously, we've got to be very, very concerned about uh, moving into recession. Now is uh, now is not the time for that, and uh, and hopefully uh, the budget will be able to help uh, help deal with that. Tom, did you feel warm and fuzzy, and that Minister Freeland was well in charge of our upcoming economic woes? Well, that's the thing that intrigues me the most about her recent performances because she really is flexing her muscles politically. And it's interesting. It's almost Paul Martin-esque how she's trying to suck up as much uh, sunlight as she can around Trudeau. She gives this masterful speech in the United States. You can agree or disagree with her analysis Mm -hmm. and descriptions, but boy, it was top-notch. It was something every Canadian could say, well, that's really good. I'm glad we've got people who can speak like that. And then she just simply dives into this thing. I'm not sure that that was a well-planned salty by uh, Christia Freeland. I think that there would have been much better preparation around a message like that, but she just let fly. So that sort of freelancing right now is going to start to cause them fits in the prime minister's office because she's clearly unhappy about something. I think that she Mm -hmm. felt that she was going to replace Trudeau in rather short order. Now it looks like he wants to stick around at least for a round with Poiliev. And she's even, you know, she won't deny that she's interested in going to NATO. So stay tuned. It's going to be quite something to watch. And stay tuned indeed. We'll be back after the break with Bob Richardson, Tom O'Care, and Tim Powers. Staying on the story. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, who is hosting this week uh, for News Talk Today from noon to two each day. And on Wednesday, as always happens, it is time for the War Room. Bob Richardson, Senior Counsel at National Public Relations and a former Ontario Liberal Chief of Staff. Tom Mulcair, CTV Political Analyst and former NDP Leader. And Tim Powers, Chairman of Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data. Just before the break, we uh, were chatting about uh, how we're doing vis-a-vis the new inflation numbers today. And the government's response specifically, uh, in fact, prior to today, the commentary by our Deputy Prime Minister, Christian Freeland, and also Minister of Finance. Tim, I'm interested to get your take on how you think the Liberal government is handling this. It's always a balancing act between showing that you're you're in control and everything is okay, and yet making sure Canadians are ready for what's about to come at us. What's what's your view of, of the tone that uh, Freeland is striking? Well, I was thinking as you were speaking to uh, Bob and and Tom, Deb, I'd rather have Christian Freeland than Liz Truss at the moment. So, you know, (laughs) that's a winning formula. I mean, the British prime minister has done something I don't think any of us have ever seen, created a free fall in her government faster than she could blink an eye. Uh, You know, look, Freeland's saying what she's saying. She has to say that. I think it's important to say that uh, because Canadians do need to be aware there are rough times ahead. There is a big debate to be had about spending. Uh, and Pierre Polyev certainly leading that charge, blaming the federal government uh, for all of the various spending measures for putting us in this precarious place that we're in. Uh, but the Liberals still have a lot of political pressure, as you know, um, to help out uh, people who don't have the means some of the rest of us have. I mean, I don't know if any government, to be blunt, uh, can do well uh, in circumstances like this. You just need to survive. I don't think the liberal government's about to tank, but it's getting worse for them. And the bigger measure there that I think suggests that pain is going to be more significant 
is less the um, the gas prices, which thankfully are in decline, uh, but the price of food is not moving. And uh, you mightn't have to drive, but you sure as hell have to eat. And uh, if, if that continues to be a pattern and more people are going to food banks and more people are going hungry and, and the Liberal government says it's connected with lower income people and they're trying to make a difference and they don't, I think they're going to have some real significant political damage done to them. Tim, you don't think Loblaws freezing its no-name products is going to take us out of that? Well, you know, as much as I love the blue menu, Deb, and the lack of sodium, I uh, no, I don't think so. All right, let's move on to our brand new premier in Alberta. It seems like she's been there for a long time, but we've had two issues in two weeks. The first, of course, was declaring that uh, the unvaccinated in her province were the most discriminated against group in her lifetime, which is around 50 years. And her second most recently was that she offered her opinion just in late April on the current Russian invasion of Ukraine. Let's actually hear what she said about that. So why would we be surprised if Russia is upset because Ukraine has nuclear weapons and has lied with the United States? So I think the only answer for Ukraine is neutrality. So both times on these issues, she apologized fairly quickly out of the gate and she asked for a meeting. Now, at this rate, her itinerary is going to be so full of meetings. I'm not sure what else she'll get done. But I'm interested, uh, gentlemen, on your take on this. Is this a big deal? Alberta is a little bit different than other parts of the province. I recognize the fact that she apologized and she seemed to have done so quickly seems to be a plus in her favor. But man, two weeks, two fairly big issues. Bob, what what are your thoughts on this? Well, first of all, I think this is embarrassing. She is clearly not qualified to be premier uh, of Alberta. And there are very good people uh, in Alberta who could be filling that job. She has ridiculous views and they're from dangerous sources. Like some of she's getting some of her views from very dangerous sources off off the internet. She's now moved into a phase phase where she's kind of a bit of the Liz Truss of Edmonton bringing her up again, where she seems sort of she's kind of hiding because she she's not going out to a whole lot of public events. She hasn't campaigned yet in her safe by election seat, so this is not going well at all. I can't imagine if I was a member of the caucus that I would be feeling fantastic and I would be ordering my lawn signs. Um, this is not a uh, this has not been a terrific uh, start. And it really does show, come on, we need to do better when we're choosing our leaders. This is just not acceptable. It's not acceptable in Alberta and it shouldn't be acceptable anywhere else in Canada either. Thomas Mulcair, you've been a leader. You know what it's like to to be there, to have a record of, of statements. Do you think she's going to be OK on this or is this a train wreck? I I think that people are underestimating her. I know that she's coming off a gig after her first round of politics. She's coming off a gig as a very hot mic radio host, you know, shop jock type. So hyperbole is part and parcel of that job description. But when she said that the unvaccinated were the most discriminated against in her lifetime, she's going to have to learn how to how to put a filter on all of that. Because when you think of, you know, kids who went through the residential school system, that was in her lifetime and it was in Alberta. And, and please go read you know, the report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and learn a little bit about it. And you won't say things like that. 50 years ago, LGBTQ people could still be openly discriminated against in, in their work and in so many other ways. So it's just it just shows she's 
She's not thinking. Uh, but I do think she's capable of thinking, unlike Bob, who seems to have decided that it's, it's a lost cause. With regard to the pure, the pure politics of her, her statements on Ukraine, I think about that for a second. There are a very large number of Albertans with origin, family mm-hmm. and origins in Ukraine. And so that's not just wrong, what she said. It's spectacularly dumb politically. If I were <laughs> helping advise Rachel Notley right now, I'd say... Every single member of your caucus is out at every event of the Ukrainian community for the next seven months until the election. I, I think she's going to really have to do some hard work, uh, Deb, to, to get some of this back. Mm-hmm. Tim Powers, is she super smart or stupid, stupid, super stupid when it comes to these issues? Well, I never call anybody stupid. My mom uh, said never to say that. Yeah, but I would say, that, look, Tom. Tom, Tom's pushing the envelope. You want leaders to read? I mean, Tom, I thought that died when you ended leading being a leader. People don't read anymore. But she could have watched. She could have watched the first Red Dawn on Netflix. Remember that one where the Russians invaded Washington? Danielle, the Russians are bad, even in Alberta. Somebody should have told her that. Uh, I, I'm not ready to write her off either yet, Deb. Uh, I Look, it does say something when, uh, yeah, you shouldn't have made those two spectacular mistakes, and they are spectacular, and Rachel. Notley is smiling giddily, but she is a smart person. Um, the question is, uh, is she going to get caught back again to Liz Truss? Because I think it is analogous in this case it, to a spiral where her own caucus starts to to unwind on her because she never had that caucus on side to begin with. Um, and does she start to bleed in places like Calgary and Edmonton, where she needs some seats there to win the election? And there's some smart people, there's smart people all over Alberta, but in those urban centers, it'll be key. I'm not sure what that noise was. Thomas, I'm going to flip to you just in the last minute that we've got here. You wrote a fairly scathing article about Pierre Poilievre's view that we no longer need the federal environmental assessments if the province has taken care of those assessments on their own. Yeah, and this is called clientelism in, in politics. It's where you try you tell people you've got something you're going to sell to them that you know you figured out that they want and they're going to pay you with their votes. What what Poiliev did over the weekend, and it only appeared in the French press, he said, look, uh, Quebec has its own board that looks at the environmental assessments. That's all we need from now on. But the Supreme Court has said time and time again that the federal government not only has jurisdiction over things like the big rivers and the waterways and the, you know, traverse the country, they have an obligation to take care of them environmentally. So there's a decent new legislation that nobody's really contested that went into force four years ago, and they're using that to evaluate the big projects. It's it's a well-defined process. So for Poiliev to make stuff up during the leadership campaign, that's one thing. He creamed his opponents, turned Jean Charest into roadkill. Fine, the guy's an incredible demolition derby. He's going to knock anybody out of the way. But on this sort of stuff, it follows them because across the country, environment is a big issue. In Quebec, it's a really big issue. And there are lots of people who understand that this just doesn't make any sense. You can't promise to get rid of a whole area of federal jurisdiction for one province, for all the other provinces. Who knows? You can't make that stuff up on the fly. And this is for me, if I was in his group giving him advice, I would see this as a red flashing light on the dashboard and say, we've got to make sure that he doesn't do this too often. Gentlemen, we're going to have to call it there. Thank you so much for joining me, Bob Richardson, Tom Mulcair, and Tim Powers. You listen to The War Room. This is News Talk 1010. This is not News Talk 1010. News Talk Today, and I'm Deb Hutton. (laughs) Other side of the break, we'll chat about some new topics. 
News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I am Deb Hutton. I am hosting News Talk Today all this week from noon to two. It's been a fun show, and we're now going to head to the West Coast for not so fun a topic. August 31st, Sunshine Coast Regional District enacted its highest level of water restrictions, which is stage four, putting a stop to all outdoor water use. On Monday of this week, the district declared a state of local emergency that introduced further restrictions banning all non-essential commercial uses of water, such as swimming pools, which isn't that necessary, but breweries, cideries, cement factories, and other uh, production facilities that aren't considered essential. Joining us to give us a sense of what's really happening on the ground is David Cannibal, the head of the BC River Forecast Center. Welcome to News Talk today, David. Hi, good afternoon. So give us a sense. I'm I'm in Toronto. Give us a sense of what has been happening and, and what the forecast looks like on the West Coast for this serious drought. Yeah, it's, this has really been a kind of slow-moving um, condition. You know, we look back uh, really over the last three months, and we've been in a, a sort of stuck pattern where we've had persistent uh, high pressure across British Columbia, particularly the south part of the province, and, and that's led to really very little or no rainfall throughout uh, the southwest corner of British Columbia. So we're really seeing that kind of cumulative effects now of that uh, period of, of dry weather and the, the lack of rainfall that's really been uh, coming to the region and, and, and really starting to see yes yeah, to see stream flows and, and, and rivers being at uh, extremely low levels yeah and I was going to say so give us a sense of, of how that's manifesting itself what what is the situation with the drought in terms of, of what we're seeing of as impact yeah it's it, it's uh, particularly because it's late season you know it's we, we don't still have that kind of summer temperature so the temperatures in the rivers themselves are not too bad, but it's really the flow in, in rivers. And when we look at unmanaged rivers, uh, those are starting to, to see extreme uh, levels, you know, the types of flows that we've really never experienced in, in many areas. Uh, so that's being problematic for, for, for fish and others that are trying to access uh, the river for, for um, habitat. Uh, and then we're starting to see those impacts trickle into the supply side of things as well for, um, you know, really not seeing any kind of replenishing uh, in terms of uh, water supply over that uh, three-month period. And what about wildfires? Obviously something that BC suffers from on a, on a routine basis. You know, certainly that lack of ground moisture and uh, saturation from, from rainfall that we get has been exacerbating the late, the late season um, wildfire side of things. So yeah, we're seeing that particularly through areas in the lower mainland and uh, the southwest. Uh, that, that's really the wildfire has been tied in with uh, this drought as well. I'm speaking with David Campbell, who's head of the BC River Forecast Centre. What do the coming weeks look like uh, with this drought, David? Well, we've, we've maybe got a, a bit of cautious optimism. Um, one of the, the big problems has been this stuck pattern that we've been in that, that really has just been dry. Um, and we're starting to see hints, and certainly as we come into the weekend here, and, and uh, is, is a more major pattern shift in the weather. And looking like getting into a little bit more westerly flow of, of, of air that tends to be more unsettled and so there is some rainfall in the forecast which is good news at, at this point uh, it's, a, it's a bit early to, to kind of declare it over I think uh, it's going to be at least helping to not deteriorate the situation more uh, 
but we still got a bit of period to, to kind of really make up for the, the deficits that we've seen over that last three months. When I was doing a little bit of reading about this prior to, to you and I having a chance to chat, David, I, I read a quote from Remco Rosenboom, who is the district uh, general manager of infrastructure services, and he said, quote, the priority is ensuring enough water for hospitals, long-term care facilities, and firefighting. Is that the state that you're at? Well, in terms of water supply in some areas, yeah, we're, we're getting to that historic low. And so as we start to see the, the kind of impacts emerge, uh, you know, and I think that's what uh, the Sunshine Coast was doing is, is prioritizing those uh, those essential services and essential needs around the water. And so particularly in that part of the province, that's where we're really seeing uh, the, the greatest impacts in terms of the, that water supply. And has this been a, a, a trend that you're seeing over the last number of years? Is this a, a one-off this summer uh, and into the fall? What, what's your view on that? Yeah, I think there are concerns that um, you know we've seen this type of pattern uh, emerging more frequently than is in the historic record. Um, this year is unprecedented in terms of seeing it, seeing it this late, but uh, we have seen really that that the pattern of getting stuck in the high pressure with 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 limited rainfall is something that uh, you know it's typical summer weather here, but we're just seeing it persist much more than is uh, is has been in the historic uh, time. So there's a lot of concern around what that means for uh, the water resource in, in the region. And what about economic impacts? I, I again, I, I read something from a, um, a Simon Fraser University expert who's been monitoring uh, the salmon in this region for, she said, 15 years, and she's never heard of a pre-spawn die-off of the scale that you've experienced out there. What are the economic and and those types of impacts beyond, obviously, just lack of supply of water? Yeah, and that's that's the concern, is is that uh, broad range of uh, aspects in terms of, of limitation of water supply. So, you know, we're hearing hearing from uh, businesses that uh, are not able to use or access water, particularly in the Sunshine Coast region, uh, obviously has uh, economic impacts. Some of the longer ranging impacts are, are hard to quantify at, at, at this stage when we look at, uh, um, you know, things like the fisheries, you know, where that can start to impact life cycle uh, and can have, you know, impacts well beyond just the, the window of time that we're in right now. So those can really uh, be difficult to assess and, uh, and, and fully understand. When do you see some of these bans being lifted, or is that too early to say? At this point, it's it's a little uh, uh, early to say whether, you know, the, the rain that we're coming is coming in in the next little bit is going to make uh, enough of a difference. You know, we're coming into what is the wet season, so you know, certainly we are expecting that uh, we are going to turn the corner eventually here as we come into the, the following weeks here. Um, and so, you know, a little bit of holding on, and, and I think that's the concern right now is, um, you know, the potential for situations to get worse before it gets better, and particularly over the next couple of weeks here. I'm speaking with David Campbell, who's head of the BC River Forecast Centre. I'm Deb Hutton. You're listening to News Talk today. We're talking about months-long drought on BC's Sunshine Coast and the water bans and anxiety that's occurred as a result of this. Uh, we'll let you go fairly quickly, David, but just wondering, uh, you know, people will say, is this strictly climate change? Uh, you alluded to the fact that we kind of need to to figure it out, but is that really what's at play here? I mean, there's certainly uh, on the condition side of things, we're we're, we're seeing that uh, you know these, these are not uh, normal uh, operating conditions at all. We're seeing that uh, 
the the dryness uh, is is really unprecedented. And so, um, when it comes to the the input of the water side of things, that's where we really are seeing um, that this is being driven by um, that that broad change in terms of uh, in terms of climate, in terms of what we'd expect to see, and in terms of you know, the unpre- unprecedented uh, climatic conditions. All right, David Campbell, we wish you uh, lots of rain this weekend, I guess, is is the best we can say. Thank you for joining News Talk today to talk about this. All right, thank you. So we're going to stick, believe it or not, with climate change. Not a topic I'm usually too keen to talk about, but our Prime Minister did say that he will guarantee that Canada will meet its emissions targets this time. Last time he was maybe kidding a little bit, but this time he really means it. We're going to talk to Michael Bernstein after the break, who's the executive executive director of Clean Prosperity. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the prime minister's comments, certainly uh, talk about whether they're legitimate comments to have made, whether he actually can live with it this time. And most importantly, what does that mean for all of us? Every time we talk climate change, whether you support efforts uh, or or not, whether you believe that what we can do here in Canada is uh, going to make a difference uh, to climate change worldwide or not, we do know that any effort does have a cost to our families, to our businesses. It's just not something that can be done without an actual physical cost to doing it. So we'll get a sense of whether this plan looks different or these targets look different than previous ones, what that will mean for you, and whether or not we can actually believe that we're going to head down this path and meet the targets of 2030. That's all coming up after the break. I'm Deb Hutton. It's News Talk Today on the iHeart Radio Network. the politicians and pundits to account. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton. I'm your host this week for News Talk Today. And we are going to talk about keeping our prime minister in check this afternoon. Tuesday, he uh, said on behalf of his government and our country that he will guarantee that Canada is going to meet its latest climate target because this time it's accompanied by a plan that shows how to get there. Since 1988, Canada has set its sights on eight different greenhouse gas emissions targets. Six of them have come and gone, and Canada never got anywhere close to meeting them. The next target is 2030 and requires Canada to get emissions 55 to 60 percent of what they were in 2005. And that's a more ambitious target than the previous one set by the Trudeau government when it came into power. In a question and answer session at the Canadian Climate Institute's conference in Ottawa on Tuesday, Trudeau was asked if, in fact, this time he would guarantee that Canada can meet these targets. Let's listen to his response. Yes. Wonderful. Yes, because every other plan was based on targets. Any politician can put forward a target. Can you actually build a plan to do it, make the trade-offs and fight for a price on carbon pollution? Pretty definitive answer to a question. Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson also said at the conference on Tuesday that to meet these goals, Canada is going to need to double or triple 
the electricity we produce. And that to do that, he said, government is going to have to invest a lot more in renewable energy, I'd say. It is going to need to be of a much more significant scale for us to actually move forward. And, and so it will require more federal-provincial collaboration. It will require a lot more creative thinking. It will require more resources. People should not underestimate the challenge that we are facing. Joining us to chat about that, uh, I, I guess, new commitment in the sense that he has, the Prime Minister has guaranteed that he's going to meet these targets this time, is Michael Bernstein, who's Executive Director of Clean Prosperity. Welcome to News Talk today, Michael. Good to be with you. So give us your general take on uh, these targets, on the goals that need to be met to get us there, and on the Prime Minister's commitment to do it for sure this time. Well, it's an, it's an encouraging step that we finally have a detailed plan in Canada for how we're going to travel the road of decarbonization and actually meet our climate targets. But of course, while putting something on paper is important and it's helpful, it is a far cry from being able to guarantee that those emissions reductions will actually be achieved. There is a lot of work to do between now and 2030. And when it comes to building big infrastructure projects, pipelines, carbon capture at at large industrial facilities, uh, electricity transmission lines, these projects take a long time to, uh, to design and then to build. So I think we're in a pretty difficult spot for 2030. But I also think that this is not just a binary test. It isn't you succeed or if you don't hit the target, you fail. The reality is we need to start reducing emissions as quickly as we can. And whatever we can't do by 2030, we need to do in 2031, 2032, etc. I kind of liken it a bit to a midterm exam. It's the night before our midterm And so the answer isn't, well, we're never going to pass because we haven't been studying to now. The answer is let's cram. Let's try to get a B, a B plus, maybe even an A minus. And then let's make sure we we pass the final exam, which is ultimately zeroing out emissions in our economy before 2050. Okay, but then let's talk about the specifics of the homework that needs to get done to meet that midterm. Uh, based on emissions levels that we had in 2020, and keep in mind we're eight years from this target, meeting the new target would mean cutting about 23 million tons of emissions on average, which uh, is like a massive amount of, if you're trying to find an equivalency of passenger cars, for example. Yeah, it's, it's a daunting challenge. And, and the thing that will help us is there are finally technologies available that are just going to become the smart business decision or the most economic choice for households. So I'm thinking about electric vehicles, for example. In the next few years, those are going to be lower cost than traditional internal combustion vehicles. Solar energy is now the lowest cost energy, the lowest form of electricity anyway, on the planet. So there are things, there are some, uh, some tailwinds here, some things that are going to help us because technology is now becoming more affordable. Um, but it's also true that, these, that this is uh, a pace of change that we have never seen before. And the idea that we're going to uh, reduce 40% of all of our emissions by 2030 uh, does strike me as uh, uh, pretty challenging to envision. And what's your take on the upping the level of of clean electricity, like doubling or tripling our renewable energy? That in eight years, that just strikes me as absurd. 
Yeah, we're not going to get there in eight years. I think that doubling or tripling target is more of a 2050 target. It's when you look at how much electricity we're going to need when everybody's driving an electric vehicle, when many people have put in electric heat pumps instead of gas furnaces into their homes, and when industry, steel mills and cement kilns, etc., have converted a lot of their processes to electricity, then we're going to be in a position where we're going to need double or triple the electricity. Uh, by 2030, I think really the goal is a lot less ambitious than that. It's can we remove most of the fossil fuel electricity, largely in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan, from the grid? If we do that alone, I think we'll, uh, that should be seen as strong progress. So I'm, I'm depressed by your example there, uh, Michael, because we bought a home in the country 20 years ago, and it had horrendously large heat pumps to heat it. It mm-hmm. was costing us a fortune. So we took them out and we mm-hmm. put in propane because 20 years ago, that's what made sense. Right. And now you're telling me I need to go back to heat pumps. <laughs> well, the good, news, the good news is those heat pumps have gotten a lot more efficient and a lot lower cost. Um, And yes, we are going to need to change out our furnaces when it's time to replace them. Gas furnaces tend to last about 15 years. So you and I may not be doing that tomorrow, but there's somebody tomorrow who's going to need a new furnace. And we need to start to get to a place in Canada, if we're serious about our climate goals, where those new pieces of equipment need to start being electric. Um, So, yes, you will have to return to it eventually, but the technology is better. I just, I, I think about, uh, you know, we, we wanted to purchase a new car. There's very limited supply. So you're asking us all to, to convert, whether it's in our homes or in places like purchasing a car. We have a real supply issue coming off the pandemic to be able to do that. Like very practically speaking, let alone to do it in such uh, high volumes as is required for the government to meet its targets. We do. And I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that. I mean, the reality is we're also in a cost of living crisis right now where people can barely afford the essentials they need. So if anyone is listening and thinking, I can't pay anything extra to, for making a green choice, I, I think that's totally fair. The encouraging thing I would say on the other side of that, though, is while we have a short term Uh, crunch here and a real challenge over the next two, three, maybe even five years, we we can see the direction of travel, that these technologies that are going to be needed to reduce carbon emissions are getting cheaper each year. And those supply chain issues that we face today are going to get resolved. And we're going to be in a place in a number of years where people are going to make these choices because they're the best choice for their life, not because they're doing it to be environmentally responsible. And that's that inflection point that may be hard to see right now, but it is coming sooner than most think. Michael, we're out of time. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Deb Hutton. I'll be back tomorrow at noon. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeart Radio Network.